what we all need? Someone to love us enough to tell us the truth, whether we want to hear it or not. It's true, isn't it? So in our sermon text that Jason just read, Paul brings this whole section, chapters 1 through 4, to a compelling conclusion by appealing to the church at Corinth based on his relationship with them as their spiritual father. Paul loved the church at Corinth in a deep, meaningful, and significant way. He loved the church at Corinth enough to tell them the truth even if they didn't want to hear it. That sounds a lot like parenting, doesn't it? Did you notice the parenting language throughout this text? Look at your copy of God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 through, uh, 14 through 21. Look at verse 14. Paul calls them my beloved children. Verse 15. You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul was their spiritual father through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he mean by this aspect of being a spiritual father? Well, if you'll remember in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, Paul said that uh, he was one of the servants through whom they believed. He said, I planted, and then Apollos came along and watered. Not just the metaphor of planting and watering, agriculture was significant there, but the order. Paul was the first one to bring the gospel to Corinth. And he planted, and just like a father who gives birth, Paul was used by God to give birth to this local church. In fact, he says so in... um Let's see, where is that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Paul says, we'll not boast beyond our limits. So this is the same church. It's about the third or fourth letter that he's written to them. He says, we're not going to boast beyond our limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence that God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. So Paul was their spiritual father. What a unique relationship he had with them. Is there someone in your life that you think of as a spiritual father? Maybe someone who shared the gospel with you, brought you to faith in Jesus Christ? Well, In this particular text, Paul's making a differentiation between him as a spiritual father who loves them as his beloved children and what he calls guides. Look at verse 15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. This word guide is the uh, pedagogos which was in the ancient Greco-Roman world a very specific 
role in society. The pedagogos had a function. This person was usually a slave or a paid attendant who functioned for the master of the house, the parents, as the guardian, the teacher, or the corrector of the children. But the motive of the pedagogos would be one of paid duty, one of obedience to the instructions of the parent, not one of deep and abiding love like a father or a mother. Jesus made a similar differentiation between himself as the good shepherd and the paid hired hands on the ranch in John chapter 10, didn't he? He says, it's the good shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. But when the the wolves come, you can tell the hired hands because they're going to protect themselves. And so in this differentiation, Paul is not saying that the other guides are bad, like Jesus was saying. What he's saying is, no one loves you like I do. I am your spiritual father. You're my spiritual children. And you might have 10,000 guides. You might have 10,000 spiritual teachers, but you only have one spiritual father. And I am coming to you out of pure fatherly love. Paul's relationship with the church at Corinth and his appeal to them is a model for pastoral ministry in churches like ours. We learn from this text that just like fathers care for their children, God has called pastors to care for the spiritual health of his church. So my prayer this morning is that our pastors will minister faithfully, that our members will respond faithfully so that our church will flourish spiritually. Look at this text with me, and I want to highlight four aspects of personal, uh, pardon me, four aspects of pastoral ministry along with their corresponding response of the members. So we have this relationship between Paul and the church at Corinth. I'm not an apostle, but that relationship is a model for us, a paradigm of what it looks like for every local pastor, the elders of a local church, and their relationship with local churches just like the church at Corinth. And we're going to learn four things about pastoral ministry this morning. And not just pointing fingers at the elders, but every time we learn something about the role of pastors, we're going to see also the response of members. Because here in this text, Paul is appealing to the church to act. And he's saying, I love you and I'm calling you and exhorting you and warning you so that they will act for the benefit of the church so that the division stops and health is restored. Friends, that's what I want for us. I want nothing but spiritual health for this church. And yes, I can say, I love you. 
with a very special kind of love that I don't think any pastor of this church will ever love with the kind of love that I have because the Lord allowed me to be part of the very beginnings of this church. So I can resonate. Now, I'm not an apostle, but I can resonate with the heart, the fatherly love that he has for this church. Four aspects of pastoral ministry. First of all, God calls pastors to love the church like fathers. That's what we see here, don't we? Pastors don't just have a job. Pastoring is not a nine-to-five, Monday through Friday, job that we do for pay. God calls pastors to go beyond duty. God calls pastors to love the church like fathers. Consider 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter talks to the elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock. In uh, Acts chapter 20, Paul gathered up all of the elders in Ephesus and he spoke to them. And, And Paul, you can just imagine this scene. Paul says to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Not just oversee, not just manage, not work for, but to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God calls pastors to care for his church with the kind of love that a father has for his children. Now, I have to be honest with you. I love the fact that he's using father imagery here instead of mothers. It seems like mothers are always the one that we talk about when it comes to loving kids, right? But Paul says it's fathers too. In fact, in one very notable place, I'd encourage you to turn there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He talks about his relationship as both a mother and a father. So we're going we're gonna to spread the wealth across both roles this morning. But God calls pastors to love the church like fathers. He talked to the church at Thessalonica about this, Thessalonians 2, verse 7. And he says, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother, taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Do you see the tenderness, the relational commitment and love that this pastor Paul has for the church in Thessalonica? Just like a mother who nurses her children, affectionate, giving of themselves, not just my nine to five. No, look at verse 11. For you know how, like a father, all right, guys, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, 
and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. So pastors are more like parents than they are CEOs. God calls pastors to love the church like fathers. And in fact, at the end of 2 Corinthians, Paul said this to this same church. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's the kind of pastor that you want here. That's a faithful pastor. God's called pastors to love and care for the spiritual health of the church, friends. Listen, you have many guides. You have many teachers. We all do. Teachers that we follow through various forms of media, and they are, by and large, good. I am thankful for the 10,000 teachers that we can access through podcasts and online in various forms, whether it's radio or TV. And as good as they are, they don't know us. They can't see our life through our device. Teachers are good, but they can't evaluate our spiritual health. They aren't available to give us counsel or to answer our questions. Teachers are God's gift to the church, but They can't rejoice with us or weep with us. They can't tell when we're discouraged or wandering away, can they? Yeah, the teachers we follow are good, but friends, we all need pastors to shepherd our souls. Did you hear that sentence? We all need pastors. I need an elder shepherding my my soul. You need elders shepherding your soul. We all do. They are God's gift and his design for the church. I'm not elevating myself. I'm saying I desperately need elders not just to work with me, but to watch over me. And so do you. So as members of God's church, we recognize God's grace to us through this unique relationship, don't we? We thank God that he has designed his church with overseers, pastors, elders who will watch over our souls. And we thank God for it. God calls pastors to love the church like fathers. Number two, specifically in verse 14 and 15, we understand that God calls pastors to correct the church with grace. Just like a father, pastors are to correct the church. But I quickly add, with grace. Read verse 14 and 15. 
Paul has just brought down the hammer on them. Do you remember the language of last week? Do you remember how how he called them into account? Now he says in verse 14, listen, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. The word admonish means to correct. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. God has called Paul specifically to correct the church with grace. And there's a difference between shaming children and correcting children, isn't there? The big difference is love and grace. We know that parents are called to both instruct, teach positively, and correct, admonish negatively. But it's also how you do it that really matters, isn't it? And Paul says here, there's a right way and a wrong way, parents, to go about correcting your kids. One of them leads to shame. The other leads to change. The other leads to admonishment, the the kind of correction that actually results in heart change and behavioral change. Proverbs chapter 13 tells us that whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. It's love that actually fuels our desire to both teach and correct our children. And so with pastors. It is love that drives teaching and love that drives correction. And Paul says, listen, I just came down hard on you, but it's not because I just want to shame you and punish you and have you Go hide in the bushes. Now, I love you. That's the difference. I love you. I have grace for you. I want what God wants for you. Take a moment to to turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to see here that God calls pastors to correct the church with grace. And in Hebrews chapter 12, he gives us a, a bit of a understanding of what it looks like to be corrected with grace. Because not only does God call parents to correct children, pastors to correct churches, but God himself corrects us, doesn't he? God is our father, and he does this discipline thing, this correction, in the very best way. Always with love. Always with grace. So Hebrews chapter 12, let's pick it up in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
Verse 7. When you're chastised, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, verse 9, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father, capital F, of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Punishment shames and breaks. Gracious, loving Discipline and correction heals, secures, and brings about change within a relationship of absolute covenant commitment and grace. And yet, we human fathers have a proclivity toward anger, don't we? Have you noticed in the New Testament that when the authors of the New Testament speak to fathers, it's almost always about this sinful proclivity. Colossians chapter 3. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now, why would Paul say that? Because fathers are really good at provoking their children and discouraging them. We end up shaming them rather than admonishing and correcting with love and grace. Ephesians chapter 6, fathers, oh, what's he going to say? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Why does Paul say that? Because all too often we sinful fathers provoke our children to anger because we discipline out of anger instead of correct in love and patience and grace. We shame rather than admonish. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but, what's the other side? Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's how you do it. And that's what God calls pastors to do, to correct the church, but do it with grace. Never harsh. Never out of sinful anger but always gracious. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, we do not lord it over your faith. We work with you for your joy so that you will stand firm in your faith. Did you hear that? 
Paul's pastoral ministry is not to lord it over, which causes us to cower in shame. But Paul says a faithful pastor under the model of his ministry does what? Quote, we work with you for your joy so that you'll stand. Brothers who aspire to be elders, this is what pastoral ministry looks like. It looks like working with people, not lording over people. Pastors are called to correct. Yes, we must correct, but always with grace. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant, pastors, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach. Do you know what the next word is? Patiently. (laughs) Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents. Yes. With gentleness. I'm afraid that we have a Christian army out there who is ready to correct every opponent. But it doesn't feel very gracious. It doesn't feel very gentle. Why? So that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The gospel does not shame. The gospel exposes the true self, so that we can be forgiven and brought into unconditional covenant union with God. Grace, grace through Christ, friends. Just like fathers, God's called pastors to correct the church, but never harsh. Always gracious. Listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 3. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of your hope that is in you. How many times have we quoted that? Always be ready to give the non-Christian an answer about the gospel. What comes next? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Why does God emphasize this over and over again? Because pastors, just like fathers, have a proclivity toward anger. And domineering rather than gentleness and grace. And so Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not not domineering over those in your charge. That's what it looks like to pastor like Paul. As members, how do we respond to that? How do we respond when when a pastor lovingly, graciously, gently corrects us? What does Paul hope for the church here? He just spent four chapters exposing their sin and correcting them, admonishing them. What's what's the hope? As members, we respond to the correction with humility, repentance, and gratitude. Why gratitude? Because somebody loves me enough to tell me the truth, even if I don't want to hear it. 
God calls pastors to love the church and correct the church. We find in verse 16 and 17 that God also calls pastors to teach the church. You see in your notes, there's another line there. Just like we love the church like fathers, just like we correct the church with grace, how does God call pastors to teach the church? Let's read verse 16 and 17 and we'll find out. In fact, read verse 16 with me out loud. Everyone, I urge you then be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. God calls pastors to teach the church how? By example. Yes, we're supposed to preach the word. That's clear. And all do we need it. And if there's no other reason to come every single Sunday morning, we need to gather with the body of Christ on Sunday morning just to have our minds reset by the word, the truth of the word of God. We need to come back here and hear truth because all week long we hear lies and they are well-marketed lies. God calls pastors to preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and all of Scripture is profitable so that the man of God can be complete, equipped for every good work. You can't be mature without being under the preaching of God's Word. We must have it. But preaching the Word is not enough. God calls pastors to live the word. Teach the word. How? By example. So Paul says, I urge you, be imitators of me. More parenting language, isn't it? Be imitators of me. First Peter chapter five, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, being examples to the flock. Titus, young pastor, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Timothy, let no one despise you because you're young, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity until I come Timothy devote yourself to public reading of scripture to exhortation to teaching don't neglect the gift which has been given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you but listen to this practice these things 
immerse yourself in them so that everyone might see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will both save yourself and your hearers. Did you hear all of those verbs? It is not enough for Timothy to know sound doctrine. He is to live sound doctrine. Timothy is not just to teach by word, but by example. God calls pastors to love and correct and teach the church by example. Here's the terrifying reality. Every pastor ought to ask himself this soul-searching question. What would this church look like if they followed my example? And yet, by the grace of God, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul, not in pride, but in absolute humility, said, follow me as I follow Christ. That's the response of a faithful member. What do we do? God called pastors to teach by example. So what does God call for us? As members, we follow our elders as they follow Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who have spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Just like every elder should be asking the question, what would this church look like if it followed my example? Every member ought to be asking this question. Am I actually living what I'm being taught? Or am I just listening? And James is very clear about that, isn't he? Do not be a hearer only, but be a doer of the word. Stop deceiving yourselves. I urge you then, be an imitator of me, Paul says. And by the way, I'm going to send you my best man, Timothy. He's a beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 1, does not include Timothy in the very beginning of the letter, which means that it was probably not Timothy who delivered this letter to the church at Corinth. In fact, in chapter 16... It talks about future tense when Timothy comes. So it is likely that Timothy is on his way to the church at Corinth and Paul is sending him there specifically because nobody knows Paul's doctrine and Paul's way of life like Timothy. He says, I'm sending him there to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. So what is specifically is Paul wanting them to imitate here? Just generally everything? No, no, no. Make sure to attach this in context. Remember last week, 
Paul said that he was following Jesus on the way of the cross. In verse 9 and 10, the way of the cross glories in being identified as fools for Christ rather than wise in this world's kingdom. And in verse 11 and 12, the way of the cross sacrifices self to serve others with the gospel of Christ. In verse 12 and 13, the way of the cross, the way of Jesus, humbles ourselves as we respond with grace even when opposed. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, stop being puffed up in pride, stop seeking status in self, and start humbling yourselves and sacrificing yourselves for Christ, the advance of the gospel, and one another. I'm going to send you Timothy to remind you of all of these things. God calls pastors to teach the church by example. Finally, in verse 18 through 21, we learn here that God calls pastors to lead the church in discipline. God calls pastors to lead the church in discipline. You remember that this issue at Corinth was no small thing. It is dividing the church. Paul uses the language of tearing it apart. And it's breaking his heart because these are his kids. This is his family. And they're being torn apart in status-seeking pride. And so he rebukes them. He corrects them. But then he says, I'm not doing this just to shame you. I'm doing this to admonish you because I love you. But, verse 18 through 21, some are arrogant. As though I'm, I weren't coming to you. But I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So what do you want? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Now, I can't help but think of the many times that I and probably you have been driving that proverbial minivan and told my kids who are fighting in the background, do not make me pull this van over there. Do not make me come back there. And I think that's kind of what Paul's saying. Do not make me get out the rod. (laughs) Do you remember that when you were a kid? We had a paddle. It was a just a thin little paddle thing. And actually, that's not true. We had a wooden spoon, now that I think about it. Thank you. We had a wooden spoon. And my dad would say, do you want me to get the wooden spoon? And I mean, it was just shivers up and down my spine. No, I do not. I do not want you to get the wooden spoon. Well, Paul says, I'm coming. And you can choose whether I come with a rod, with the wooden spoon, or... 
in the spirit of gentleness. But he starts here in verse 18 by saying some of you are arrogant. They're full of themselves. They're overinflated with their own self-importance. And they're continuing to to uh, disregard Paul's loving admonition. They're not shamed by it. They're not changed by it. They're continuing. So Paul says, if necessary, I will come. And he says, listen, the kingdom of God does not consist in mere speech, mere wind and air, but in power that brings about real effect. Those who are puffed up will be popped like balloons. Verse 21. In which of these two ways do you want me to come as father? He doesn't wish for any confrontation. But if some persist in ignoring his entire argument of chapters 1 through 4, then they will have made their own choice. And he will be a faithful pastor. He will come and he will discipline. But I want you to notice that I did not word my fourth point. God calls pastors to discipline the church. We'd have to be Presbyterian, I suppose, to do that. I don't know. It's church discipline. And I'd have no authority in and of myself. Paul did. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a special case. I'm not. But you are, church. The authority of Christ, the keys of the kingdom, have been given to the church of Jesus Christ. And so God calls local pastors to lead the church in discipline when necessary. It's a hard thing. It's a grievous thing. But where sin persists, it's a necessary thing. Why? Church discipline, appealing to those who call themselves Christians, appealing to them to follow Jesus, to abstain from sin, Church discipline that, uh, that appeals to those who are members of the church to be faithful to the church. Church discipline is for the welfare of the individual member. It's not to shame them, but it is to help them, to restore them. Church discipline is for the health of the church. Church discipline is for the testimony of Christ outside of the church. Because church discipline says we take Jesus and sin seriously. We take the glory of Christ seriously. And church discipline is for the glory of Christ through his church. And as members, when pastors have to lead in church discipline, which, by the way, is chapter 5 next week, 
When pastors are called by God to lead the church in discipline, as members, we see church discipline as an act of love. Real, genuine, godly, gospel love for the unrepentant one and for the church. It's not to shame to bring about repentance and restoration. Paul's relationship and appeal here in chapter 4 provides a model for pastoral ministry for every local church friends. Just, Just as fathers care for their children, God's called local church pastors to care for the spiritual health of his church. He calls us to love the church like fathers and correct the church with grace and teach the church by example, and lead the church in discipline. But that also means that the members of the church have a responsibility. We, as members of the church, have a responsibility to recognize the grace of God through this unique ministry and relationship. We we respond to correction with humility and repentance and gratitude. We follow our elders as they follow Christ. And we see church discipline as an act of love for everyone involved. And so, may we pray that that our elders will minister faithfully and our members will respond to that ministry faithfully, so that our church will flourish spiritually. It's the only way we will under God's gracious design. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that by your grace you have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You have made us part of the new covenant people of God by grace through faith in Christ for your glory and for our good. We praise you for the church and we pray that you would cause our elders and I pause for a moment and I say, I pray that you would rear up more elders among us and that you would give us the grace to be faithful so that we would minister to your church the way you have called for us to minister. And I pray that you would give every member all the grace that is necessary to follow and respond faithfully so that our church will flourish spiritually. Please, God, do that. Do that for our good. Do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.